Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. Thank you for joining today's education. Welcome everybody. This is Julie Tanner. I'm a nurse educator with HPNA and thank you for joining us today for our podcast corner with our guest interviewees from HPNA's Research Advisory Council. Uh, joining us today is Heather Coates, our Director of Research for HPNA. We also have Suzanne Sullivan with us, as well as John Ying Shu with us. And they're going to share with you stories about research and how we got to where we are today and where we hope to be in the future. So with that, Heather, if you could kick us off with your introduction, a little bit of background, and then we'll move to Suzanne, and then we'll move to John Ying. Sure. So hello, everybody. Yes, as Julie said, I'm the Director of Research for Hospice and Palliative Nursing Association. I also hold an appointment as an assistant professor at the University of Colorado College of Nursing. Specifically, my research focuses on the integration of person-centered narrative interventions into the electronic health record and looking at those um, outcomes for persons and their families who are living with serious illness, but also really thinking about that clinician who's caring for the person living with serious illness. Thank you, Heather. And Suzanne? Yes, of course. So my name is Suzanne Sullivan, and I'm an assistant professor of nursing at the University of Buffalo, and um, we are part of the State University of New York uh, system. And uh, my area of research focuses on uh, developing personalized approaches for guiding older adults in the community and their families, of course, um, with decision-making and serious illness, uh, supporting transitions and care to community-based supportive care services, such as hospice and palliative care. And, and I really try to focus on maximizing quality of life at the end of life. So I'm very focused on trying to get people um, into palliative care and hospice care further upstream so that they can realize the benefits uh, that I believe very strongly in, in palliative care. So. Um, I also sort of have a little bit of a methodological specialty and I use machine learning approaches um, to develop tools that can be interpretable by clinicians to help identify people who may benefit from supportive care services. So in English, that means that I work on trying to develop tools that will help nurses know when people maybe could benefit from starting to engage in some of these discussions about um, their goals for care. And, um, and hopefully someday I'll also get my research to the point where I'm helping them um, really get become expert in having these conversations and being, I hope, leaders. I think, I think nurses need to be the leaders of um, uh, goals for care discussions. So, so I'm probably not as focused as I should be, but I want to just change the whole world. So I'm doing it. I love it. That's great, <laughs> Suzanne. We all do. It's kind of our job. You know, we think it is. Thank you so much. And John Ng, if you could please share with us. Hi, everyone. I am an assistant professor at the School of Nursing in the Midwest at Purdue University. I'm part of an interdisciplinary college of health and human sciences. And my work is predominantly focused on supporting family caregivers who I think are often the hidden workforce, as I call it, <laughs> because a lot of times they're, we're all uh, family caregivers are very involved in helping hospice and palliative care patients and those who are at who with serious illness towards the end of life, but they aren't as involved in care as I hope that they were. And I have a special focus on caregivers who are also employed outside of the home. So they're working with a job as well as caregiving for somebody and really trying to um, help employers and businesses understand that this is a very, can be a very taxing role and be, and help them be more open to offering workplace supports and policies for um, family caregivers. And I also have a special interest in neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease. And um, I, I guess I, my main focus has always been on communication and how do you help families have discussions earlier on about end of life decision making and planning and not just the very end of life, but earlier on in the disease trajectory um, so that they can go to their clinicians and have great conversations and be prepared rather than making 
very critical decisions when everyone is just distraught and can't really process what the types of decisions they need to make. Well, y'all, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's, we've got a pretty impressive panel. And it's interesting to me, and one of the questions that I hear a lot from, from the field is that, you know, there's a lot of varying roles in research. So you know, each of the three of you kind of described yourself or have described yourself as researchers. So could y'all explain a bit more about, you know, your role as a PhD prepared nurse versus an academic avenue such as a DNP prepared research nurse. And um, so Suzanne, we'll kick that off, that question off with you. Just share with us a little bit about the difference. Research nurses or those of us with the, the doctor philosophy, we're really trained to be scientists, right? Research scientists. And um, so, that role means that we learn lots of things about how to design experiments or investigate, um, you know, uh, maybe the, the a phenomena or, um, uh, you know, or test hypotheses, these types of things. So we really are um, have that scientific background. Um, the role of the DMP, the doctor of nursing practice, is much more of a clinically focused um, doctorate. So people with DMPs are. Uh, they're really experts in providing, you know, the highest level of uh, nursing care um, possible. DMPs also uh, do engage in research. Um, I think that in the, the way that things are really going lately with these different um, approaches through universities is we're really starting to partner the DMP and the PhD together because the DMP brings this really clinical perspective where the PhD has this, you know, scientific research training and together they're a beautiful thing because it's, it, you can't do everything, right? So we all have to work in teams. We bring things to the table. So um, I think it's similar to maybe the MD PhD track where you're not just a researcher, um, but you're not just, not to say just a clinician, but you know what I mean? That we have, um, it, it takes, what do they say? It takes a community, right? Um, for example, I'm not a nurse practitioner. I have a bachelor's in nursing. Um, so uh, I have some, I bring something different than a, a DMP trained nurse would. So, um, so we researchers, we kind of are part of the puzzle, but not the whole puzzle. And again, that also just gets back to that whole idea of how we each, each person brings something very different to the table. Um, I also have a degree in, um, business. So that's just one other way that nurses, we tend to have um, uh, very different um, experiences. And that's one of the things that I think makes us really an interesting profession because many of us have had careers um, and all of those little pieces all come together. So I hope that answered the question. Absolutely. And that's, that's what we, you know, that's kind of always been a, a question, especially if you're looking at advancing your academic or your your career in leadership or in clinical or research. This helps to kind of put a frame on that. And Heather, you and I were talking a while back and, and I really valued your approach to your role as a PhD. Would you share that with our listeners? Sure. So for those listening out there, um, I think if I've, I have said in the past and some of you may have heard me say this, you know, I was very happy. Um, I was also a C, you know, certified nurse's aide and then went got my RN, just providing that clinical care. Um, but thinking about furthering my education, I was ready to have more of that leadership space and to hear my, to have my voice heard more. So I went and I became an advanced practice nurse um, with a, you know, master's of science in nursing because I wanted to be heard. <laughs> And part of that for me, you know, I was an advanced practice nurse for over 10 years. And when I decided I wanted to have more education, you know, trying to think of like, should I do the DNP? Should I do the PhD? At that point, I felt like I was already advanced practice nurse and getting that, you know, in terminal degree or DNP behind my name. It was really about, you know, generating new knowledge and being able to lead a program of research around something that I was very passionate about, which was this, you know, narrative psych, social, spiritual well-being for patients. And so I knew that choosing the PhD track was best for me, but I work now collaboratively along, you know, my DMP colleagues, 
Um, and together, you know, as Suzanne had said, I think that's where the richness comes of nurses, again, from that team approach that we can build the expertise. We all have our different skill sets that we bring to the team. Um, so we can really think about, you know, truly advancing expert care in serious illness um, and improving the care for patients and their families. Thank you, Heather. You know, I didn't realize that you were a CNA when you started yeah. your career in nursing. And th so that's that's remarkable for both you and Suzanne both. And yeah. thank you much for, for the time that y'all have given to, to help us advance expert care. Yeah. Hey, can so I just jump in, in real quick? Yeah, oh, absolutely. You, absolutely. I'm sorry. Before no. you move on, not to jump ahead, but just something Heather said really kind of stuck with me. That's really exactly why I decided to get a PhD or even just to go on from my bachelor's degree once I finally got it, which took forever, but <laughs> was that same thing. I felt like at the bedside, I could help my individual patient. And when I moved into management, I felt like I could help people maybe within my agency, but eventually I just really wanted to have a larger impact. And I, I decided that the way I could help the most amount of people would be to, um, to move towards research and really try to try to focus on some of the um, you know policy level um, changes and how can we how can we impact the, the greatest number of people? So I completely hear you there, Heather, on that. It, it, it is. It's just beautiful stories. So John Ying, I have a question for you. Um, so what led to your current role as a hospice and palliative care nurse scientist? We've heard from Heather, we've heard from Suzanne, and I really love your story. So if you could share that. Well, Julie, I was also a, a nurse, a nursing assistant too, <laughs> at the very beginning of my nursing career. So I think it's kind of interesting. We all mentioned that because it was so important, at, I think for all of us to have that type of background and clinical experience moving into the RN role later on. And uh, in terms of your question, Julie, I was always really interested in research because of my father. He He's an engineer and a, and a researcher. And when I went into nursing school, which was actually a really big faux pas <laughs> for my family because um, they always thought I was going to medical school. And that was kind of the track I was going for forever until my senior year in high school, I decided I was going to nursing school because I shadowed some nurses and thought they did amazing work and the doctors never touched the patient, <laughs> at least from where I was uh, where I was shadowing. And when I went to nursing school, he said the first word out of his mouth was, well, at least you can get a PhD and be a scientist too. <laughs> So I always knew in the back of my mind that was my goal and where I was headed, but I didn't know I was going to do a BSN to PhD directly. <laughs> that was never my purpose, intention, but I had a wonderful experience as an undergraduate researcher at the University of Pittsburgh and had this amazing research mentor. And I think this speaks volumes to how much mentorships and people who have who are or have been doing research can really shape our future for us she um annette dr annette devito dabs i she's still at the university of pittsburgh she was she was just so instrumental in how i viewed research and how enjoyable it was it was you know this fun thing that we could do together and create new knowledge and like suzanne said that's also exactly why i started decided to pursue a PhD after my bachelor's was because of this promise and opportunity in research to be able to affect populations and really change you know whole societies is what I was I was what I was mm -hmm. thinking and and so that's how I ended up going down the research path and with hospice and palliative care I had a lot of clinical rotations and the clinical work I was doing as a nursing assistant were with cancer patients at the time and I would see these families have drastically different end of life stories where some families would have palliative care and, and palliative care intervene early on and they would be able to have really good discussions about what they wanted at the end of life. And 
things were calm. And, and I thought, wow, that's a wonderful way to have a good end of life versus other families where they never had the opportunity to have palliative care intervene early on. And so it was all of a sudden they would be headed home on hospice or and die the next day and everyone would be distraught. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, why is there such a difference in the types of care we're providing when obviously palliative care can have a positive impact on these families' lives? Why can't we have it earlier? And so that's how I ended up falling into the hospice and palliative care world because I just wanted to, to change the way that families were experiencing the end of life. So John Yang is your father proud? I'm sure he is. <laughs> so, oh yes, when, he got yes. over that after, after a while. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable. And I have to come back to what y'all all have brought forth in this podcast is that each of you were CNAs. I mean, this is remarkable um, for inspiration. And, and just again, I can't, I can't thank you enough for sharing that that background with us. It's 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 really remarkable. So for the group, um, and Heather will kind of kick off with you. So what have been some challenges that you've seen or faced even personally in your career as a as a nurse scientist and researcher? Um I think from a challenge standpoint, you know, like I said, I never dreamed that this Southern girl certified nurses aide during high school knew I wanted to be a nurse, went directly into nursing school and was really happy being a hospice and home health nurse um, would be somebody with the PhD. And now I'm the director of research and leading my research advisory council, which is fabulous. I think the difficult part um, and challenging piece is, you know, how can we who have that PhD perhaps behind our name provide and mentor the next generation um, to think about mm -hmm. you can be that person, right? You can be that Southern girl who never dreamed. I never had a dream when I was, you know, 40 years ago thinking about being a nurse, putting PhD behind my name. Nobody in my family had that level of education. I did, my parents were college educated, so they had bachelor's degrees, um, one in animal science, and my mom was a teacher. So maybe it was that teacher space of her just mm -hmm. really empowering the, you know, continue to always educate yourself and learn your learn and, and make the world a better place. Um, so I think it's that role of the challenge is like thinking if you can't do it, you can, as Juan said, you know, thinking about those spaces of who are those people that have been in your life to help you move yourself forward, um, whatever that is moving forward for you mm -hmm. and doing to think about now that I have this responsibility of being the director of research for hospice and palliative is how can my and my team or the research advisory council help training provide practical knowledge, you know, to how you find the evidence, because you can do it too. You don't have to have the PhD behind your name, critique that evidence, think about how that evidence, and then really putting that evidence into practice to improve the care that all of us, you know, want to um, improve care for patients and their families living with serious illness. You mentioned mentor, you know, that's, that's a thing that seems to be coming through pretty heavy. Um, it's the third time that we brought it up in, in the podcast today. And just the role that y'all are playing today in this, in this podcast, you know, serving from a, you know, inspirational standpoint is, is in its own light, mentoring, future mentoring for, for others. Um, Suzanne, how about what do you see as challenges that you faced um, in your career as a, as a nurse scientist? researcher well i think first off just kind of speaking to what heather just um talked about i also i had no idea what a phd was until not that long ago honestly um so i also didn't have any understanding of that so i think that's one thing that's challenging is just getting um getting nurses uh 
also further upstream, like I say about palliative care, you know, um, we really can't do it. And what we bring to the table is incredible because we're nurses. We're not just some scientists who's never actually done it before, right? So, um, so I think trying to make this, uh, pave this way for, for people to come along, I've sort of just bumbled along and found myself here and I love it. It's the best thing. Um, but I didn't get here uh, directly or easily. So, um, so I think that's one of the challenges is just the, the really just the, you know, the, just the entry was <laughs> just to realize, mm -hmm. oh, I, this is actually an option. Who knew, you know, that I could do that. I always thought if I got a master's degree, I'd be like, wow, you know? So, um, so I think podcasts like this are great just to help people understand what that nurses really can do these kinds of things. And that, um, you don't have to come from a fancy background to be able to do it. Um, speaking to mentoring, I, um, I've struggled a little bit with getting mentors in palliative care. Um, I, again, maybe because I haven't come from such an academic background, it's been a bit of a challenge for me. Um, I think one of the reasons is I work in a very um, multidisciplinary way. So I often work with engineers and um, because of the big data research that I do. Um, so I feel like I'm often kind of straddling multiple specialties, which sometimes mm -hmm. makes it difficult for me too to kind of wrap my head around one topic really well. I kind of have to know a bunch of, a lot about a bunch of things. Um, so I'm kind of not an expert of anything, but what do they say? Master of uh, what is it? Or none or something. Yeah, masters of none. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think one of those things that I've experienced too is that people are, I hate to say it, but people are generally just uncomfortable talking about end of life care, especially when we're, you know, we're comfortable talking about it. But to try to get other disciplines to, when I say, oh, I really want to talk about, let's go model mortality risk. And they're like, what? <laughs> Why would I want to do that? So, so I think that's one of the barriers, um, helping kind of speak that, that language. Um, as an early investigator, it's been kind of challenging for me too to move from the clinical realm into the research realm. Um, but uh, so you notice I talk a lot about my clinical experience because it just informs so much of who I am. Um, I think I'm getting better at that. Um, but I also think that that clinical perspective allows me to bring um, uh, something, a unique perspective to my research. And then I think also we tend to uh, suffer from imposter syndrome. So I try to keep myself grounded, you know, imposter syndrome, meaning I, sometimes I'm like, wow, this is me doing this. I think Heather said that, like, how is this me? <laughs> I can't believe that, I'm, you know, somebody wants to talk to me on a podcast, why, you know? So um, I think we need to um, remember that, that, you know, we're here for a reason, um, we're doing good work and um, to not be our own, our own barrier, you know, and to just, really uh -huh. so. That's beautifully well stated. Um, Jaeen, what are you, what are your thoughts? I, I, you and I were talking earlier and, and one of the things that you had brought up as far as challenges, just kind of as a little reminder about, you know, you were talking about it's easy to become burned out. So do you want to talk a bit about that? Yes, it's, <laughs> Julia, it's, uh, especially with COVID, I think this has really hit home for me recently. And just thinking about the importance of self-care and taking some time away, stepping away to really think about what am I doing? How is this important? And, and as Suzanne said, staying grounded in why we're doing the work we're doing. I think that can be a challenge a lot of times in research if you're, especially if, if you're starting um, starting your program of research, like Suzanne and I are right now, and really trying to get big projects going, but trying to get money for it and not being successful all the time, and you get a lot of rejections, and it's it's sometimes hard to remain positive and think that wow, we're really trying to do important work, and it's okay, we can keep applying, and we're working with wonderful people. Um, I really value the interactions I have with my clinician colleagues from the the RNs who are working at the bedside, the nurse practitioners. Um, I have a great nurse practitioner friend locally. We talk all the time about what she's facing in palliative and hospice care currently because that really helps me to remind myself why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. 
And also, if sometimes um, I have clinician colleagues come and ask me questions about hospice and palliative research, and I feel that if I can help somebody who is clinic practicing clinically right now, right away by giving them some resources, because I know how to search the literature, for example, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. great, let me do that. And I, so that, that really helps me stay positive and upbeat, <laughs> even though I think as researchers, we, we do face a lot of rejections and we have to build that resilience. <laughs> so that resilience, absolutely. It's, it's y'all got it the whole way around. Um, it's, I'm curious if you could help me for our listeners out there and, and Jane, we can just keep this conversation going. What, what is something that people seem to misunderstand about research? I think there's often a misconception about who can do research. And I, I think the uh, Heather and Suzanne have brought this up a little bit already where you don't need a PhD to do research. And I, and I, I think oftentimes when I tell people, oh, well, that's a great idea. Like you should do something about it. They, they automatically say, well, I'm not a researcher. I can't do this. <laughs> and, I, and I think that I think that there are lots of ways to contribute to research. So for example, um, we had just talked about the DNP role, for instance. I think DNPs are incredible individuals who can really bring research into practice. And that's a whole type of research now. It's uh, translational research and implementation science. It's, it, it, it's considered research. If they're taking something and adapting it, let's say, into their own clinical practice from maybe something that occurred, a research project that happened in the hospital setting, and they're transforming it into their home health practice. That that mm -hmm. in and of itself is implementation science. Um, other people can be involved in research from the, the I, I think um, Suzanne's work with big data just speaks volumes to how important each of us as nurses, no matter what our role is from, if we're doing bedside care, we're charting, we're entering data into EHRs, electronic health record systems, and all of that data can be used as research. So we're all being, we're all involved in some way, shape, or form. It's just that sometimes it's not obvious and, and definitely don't need a PhD to do it. So um, also as researchers, and well, I should stop saying researchers because we can all be researchers, but as scientists who are working in the academic world, we're always looking for clinicians to collaborate with. I mean, I work at a at a university that does not have a hospital system. So I'm always reaching out to clinicians who are working in the local community hospitals or um, really all over the country to work together. And and I and I think that that's just a, a testament to, you know, how people can be involved. And even if you don't think you can be involved, if you have an idea to improve something on your clinical floor or um, your, your hospital setting or clinic setting and you're not sure where to start, I'd encourage I'd encourage people to contact their local nursing school or um, yeah, their local nursing school and see if there's somebody who's interested in this topic because most likely somebody is interested in that topic <laughs> and would be happy to work with you. That's great advice. I mean, that's that what if question. And I think we, we see it a lot, you know, there are better ways to do it. And it's got to start, start at the bedside. And Heather had referenced earlier about researchers being, you know, kind of the research is the bedrock to our practice. And without, without this type of research, we can't, continue to advance expert care and understanding the differences about it um, is extremely beneficial. Um, Heather, this might be a good point for us to talk a minute about the uh, nursing resource guides that your council has developed for HPNA. You wanna kind of give people some ideas of what's in the future headed their way? Sure, so part of this whole impetus for doing the podcast is really about before we thought about the podcast is putting together resources for you at all levels of our membership from the CNA to RN, advanced practice nurse on how-tos. We've been calling them the how-tos. So with the help of the Research Advisory Council and myself and the Hospice and Palliative Nursing 
um, staff. They'll be forthcoming some how to's on how to critique the literature, how to search the literature before you even get to the point of critiquing the literature. And then what do you do or what kinds of research is out there from qualitative research to quantitative research to um, mixed methods research and then the levels of how you critique that. Even more so that dissemination piece, which you know, um, Zhang was talking about that translational aspect. There are so many people I see across the hospice, hospice and palliative world that are doing great work um, whether that's a quality improvement project or a program evaluation, you know, project, but then they don't share that work with the rest of us. Um, whether that's through a, you know, a dissemination in a presentation at a local, regional, or national, or even international conference, or whether that's, you know, doing a presentation via poster, via um, another podcast. So we've put together a couple of how-tos on how to do a scholarly poster presentation, how to do a scholarly abstract. So you can then be awarded the, what we talk about, we get rejection and that happens, but actually do the poster presentation and or a scholarly presentation. So we really hope from the Research Advisory Council that these resources, uh, nursing resource guides on the how-to do research or really practical hints and tips for everybody to think about if they've never done that first, you know, submission of an abstract to be able to do a poster that they could read them, use the resource and, you know, throw it, throw, throw your abstract in the town, you know, in there, be part of the review process and keep learning. I think the other thing that hospice and palliative nursing as a field we're trying to do is think about, you know, mentorship with the mentees so some of us who have that research skill and thinking about how we can, um, you know, mentor that next generation. So mm -hmm. more to come on that, but I know that is something that is very important to hospice and palliative nursing. And we hope that you guys use these resources to help you become part of hospice and palliative nursing research. Well, I think the, the, your, the advisory council, um, I'm pulling those together and, and for our listeners, those will be available in December um, as part of our HPNA benefits and be on the lookout. I guess it's a bono for y'all's research advisory council how-tos. And there'll be, I believe there's a total of four of those that are that'll be coming out. Um, either December or January, I'm not quite sure, but they they be on the lookout next couple of months for those. They're with the copy editor right now. That's right, exactly. They're running through the process. So a uh, couple of questions, and this might, I don't, this isn't, um, I'll just let y'all do a round robin on this one. So, and John Ying, we'll start with you uh, about Kind of give us an example of the you know the power of palliative care nursing research and and how it has applied to practice in the past. Um, what's an example of of what we are doing today that nursing research has shown us the way? The the first example that I always think of when I think of nursing research in palliative and hospice care is ELNIC because that was one of the first things I was ever exposed to as a student nurse into the world of hospice and palliative care. And I right now, currently, it's also affecting one of my DNP students who is taking um, some aspects of ELNIC and turning it into one of her DNP projects to help inform her pediatric nurse colleagues about what palliative care is and, and because she feels that there's a very big misunderstanding of what palliative care is in, in her hospital setting. And I think that ELNIC has really changed the conversation and shaped how we as clinicians and not just as nurses, but it has, I think it has also changed the profession, the healthcare, healthcare professions overall in how we talk about palliative care, what palliative care means, how it can be applied to different settings. I think in almost all of the clinical settings I have been involved in or am aware of, there has been some sort of LNEC training mm -hmm. um, available to clinicians on staff. And I, I just think that's a wonderful example of how 
a research project that was more um, that was about education and and telling people about informing people about what palliative and hospice nursing was has turned into this nationwide um, really exemplary program for clinicians overall and and it has really changed and impacted both in the um, clinicians in the inpatient and outpatient setting and so that's one of the examples I can think of off the bat. Well, that's a beautiful example and we always want to, you know, just take a moment and reflect on all the work that Betty Farrell and um, the American Colleges of Nursing and have done. Uh, there was a press release that went out last week that over a million nurses have been trained in internationally uh, in LNIC and that's over 20 years. So a million nurses over 20 years. And that's a beautiful example of how you know, research and evidence can can affect practice. And Heather, what, what are your thoughts on that question? What would be an example that you could put forth for our listeners? You know, I think we've all heard another very robust uh, foundation is our national consensus guidelines for quality palliative care. That's currently in the fourth edition. And if you were to, you know, go download that and look at the reference list of that national consensus guidelines, it is fully packed with many, many researchers across the, you know, field, um, across all disciplines that contribute to what those national consensus guidelines are for quality palliative care across the nine domains. And so I think that component of just that more global space that we use for criteria to say, are we doing quality palliative care, but also the bedrock of all of the multitude of research that has been put into that. And then of course there's a national consensus panel that is set together and created this national consensus guideline, but we're in the fourth edition and that's phenomenal to think that our field has come so far and still, you know, building onto that bedrock and thinking about that. And so when I think about my research, which is psychosocial, spiritual, you know, aspects, those domains of psychological aspects of care, you know, spiritual, existential aspects of care and social aspects of care, I hope my reference from the work that I do is going to be one of those references in the next edition of the National Consensus Guidelines of Palliative Care when we are, you know, involving or, you know, advancing the expert care and serious illness. NCPs, that's, uh, yep. it, it's, it's, it's it, it's the evidence. And we'll put um, in the site when we, when we go live with this podcast, we'll have actually references or resources for you for the NCP. And we'll also have resources for you all for our listeners for LNAC access as well. So, just as an aside on that. All right, this is a, a question for Suzanne. Um, what would you tell others who are thinking about furthering their career as a PhD nurse scientist? I would say to go for it. <laughs> um, I think it's an incredible career. There aren't nearly enough of us. Um, I think um, getting a PhD if you're a nurse actually has a career path where some, some people with PhDs are, may have more trouble finding employment in academia. Uh, I think there aren't enough of us um, doing palliative care research just period. Um, so your work can really make an impact if you, if you go for it. It took me many years to get my um, PhD I, I went, um, I started with, as I said, a CNA, I had an associate's degree, I eventually got a bachelor's, a master's, it took a long time. So you don't have to just follow a traditional path in order to, um, to get to your ultimate goal, if that's what it is. So um, I think taking um, steps that make sense for you, that work for you and your family and where you are in life it, are perfectly fine and you'll bring something really important along the way. Um, I would suggest reaching out to people who may be mentors. Um, certainly you can always contact me through the HPNA. I'd be more than happy to respond. I think we all are 
mm-hmm. because we want to mentor. And so um, even, if, even if it's something as simple as, you know, um, real basic questions about, you know, what, what would a, a reasonable next step be for me or what are kind of opportunities are out there? Um, I think ask your resources, talk to people that you admire, ask them what they've done um, and, and try to find, you know, paths to, um, to achieve your goals, but you can get there. It just, um, we all have different, different ways of getting there, but I'll just end that by saying that um, getting my PhD, becoming a um, nurse researcher is really the pinnacle of my career. And I would never have, I would never change it. It's just completely changed my life. And I, um, I loved being a hospice nurse and I um, sometimes really miss that, but I also am just absolutely fulfilled with, with where I am now. So we are closing in on our podcast and I, I have a question and Heather, maybe this will be one, one for you. Um, what about the leadership role in research? You know, we hear a lot about nurses or, you know, we need to advance our leadership. We need to have our voice heard. Um, I would like to get your feedback on that. And then I have, um, One more question after that. So let's talk first about the leadership role. Sure. I think, you know, thinking about my own personal story, which I talked about, you know, why I ended up doing that PhD or why I even went and got my, you know, advanced practice degree is I wanted to have that leadership voice um, that I didn't feel like I always had as the, you know, bedside nurse. And so I furthered my own education and it has been amazing to see what, letters behind your name get you at different kinds of tables that you never thought you could be at. I think all of us in nursing are leaders. We are flexible in the way we approach, you know, the care that we do for our patients and families. So we always are leaders, but as you add an additional layer of, you know, education and learning behind your experience, you know, you can do it. Um, you are a nurse and there's a reason you're a nurse, so you can do it. Don't be scared of thinking of research or jumping on a research team, looking for opportunities to collaborate, you know, with research teams around or scientists and further those education skills. So you can continue to be what I call blossom into that leader. And like I said before, I never dreamed uh, 20 years ago that I would be sitting here as the director of research of hospice and palliative nursing association, a dream that wasn't on my bucket list. Um, but it came to me, you know, as I continued to further my education and just kind of step through those doors that came available to me. So you can do it just like Suzanne said. Um, so step into that and continue to use your leadership skills, which you do in your own clinical unit, but think about how you could be impactful on a much larger scale and keep moving that leadership skill that you have, I think, intrinsic to yourself uh-huh. by adding those educational components to then really get to be asked to come sit at the table and advance expert care and serious illness with us. <laughs> That's great. I love it. You're inspiring to, y'all are just inspiring to, to so many of us out there. So John Yee, this one's for you. Knowing what you know now, what words of advice would you give your early career self about a career as a PhD prepared hospice and palliative neuroscientist? I think I'm not going to say anything new that hasn't already been said. I think Suzanne said it best, just go for it. I, I think if this I think for me, because I had known that I always was interested in research and wanted to do this, which is a little bit different of a path than some others who um, pursue a PhD, I never really, I don't, maybe I held back a little bit at the beginning. Uh (laughs) I was really, really young when I started the PhD program. I, I remember I was like 22 and one of the, one, I think the youngest admit Um, in my program and everyone was, I don't know if they were worried or (laughs) maybe they should have been, but (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think many people were a little bit doubtful and concerned about my age and, 
you know, was I mature enough to be part of this program and that sort of thing. And I think, you know what, let me go back and say that one of the things that I wish I had done differently at the beginning was be more persistent in what I knew I wanted to do with end of life research and not allow other people's ideas to bounce me around so much. And I think that happens a lot in any type of project that we might be interested in. If we're a nurse scientist as a PhD, if you're a DNP working on a quality improvement project or a nurse in the hospital, a staff nurse in the hospital or a nurse manager wanting to do some QI project, it's so easy to get people's ideas and people have wonderful ideas, but you can't do everything. And you really have to look within yourself and decide what is it that's most important to me that I really want to change and, and, and move forward on. And I think early on, I was not as adamant about what I wanted to do with my with the topic I wanted to pursue in research. And so I was easily confused <laughs> and maybe it was because of my age because I was so young. And, and, I, and I think that I would have probably had a little bit of a different path in research if I had stuck to my guns and said, I'm gonna do end of life care for my dissertation work. Um, and, and it would have, yeah, would have led me down a slightly different path, but I'm really glad to be where I am today because I think that if it wasn't for the different experiences um, that my mentors had suggested to broaden mm -hmm. my horizons and help me understand from a bigger perspective why palliative and hospice care was so important, I also wouldn't be where I am today. So <laughs> I'm grateful for the circuitous route I took <laughs> to get to the research um, place where I am today. But if I think if early on, if I was like, I'm going to do this and this is what this is where my passion is. Um, it might have been more direct. <laughs> I think that's a that's a beautiful story. I mean, it is. It's like whole truth, and and you know, it's it's it is remarkable how we need to go into go into it and whatever that situation is, and and hold true to that passion. And thank you for holding true because it's amazing the work that's being done. So Heather. With this, this will be our last question for the podcast as we close things out. Could you tell us a bit about the Research Advisory Council and the role and what you anticipate your agenda being for, for us for the future of hospice and palliative nursing? Well, Julie, I'm glad you asked that. Um, part of my role as the Director of Research with the support of my Research Advisory Council members um, which are appointed members. Um, I started in this role last January and have had a fabulous year working with um, my council members. So there's a total of six. We also invite the emerging special interest group. So if you're not a member of that group and you're a budding, you know, uh, researcher or just want to be involved in like what's happening at the level of maybe I want to be a PhD or I want to think about, you know, DNP or I'm a postdoctoral fellow. That's that group. We also have a research special interest group um, that you can be a part of if you're out there and you're like, I do have a PhD and I've never joined the research special interest group. So you can do all of those through your membership profile. But purposely, that's the research advisory council that I get the wonderful pleasure to lead with monthly meetings. And we will be launching the next Hospice and Palliative Nursing Research Agenda 2022-2025. Um, as of last week at the Hospice and Palliative Nursing Board meeting, the topics for that upcoming agenda, um, TBD, have been approved. And me and the Research Council will be stepping into the next year of, again, going to the literature, critiquing the evidence, just like we've talked about today, to form and collectively come up with the Hospice and Palliative Nursing Research Agenda 2022-2025. So I'm really looking forward to diving back into the literature and the evidence that's there with my with the Research Advisory Council team um, as we put that forth. The current Hospice and Palliative Nursing Research Agenda is on the website. You can just Google that and find it, no problem. 
um, and we'll be shifting some of those ideas as you know we're trying to stay abreast with the topics that are important to the hospice and palliative um, field and thinking about always you know that advancing expert care and serious illness so, so that's something to be excited about and i again i think heather bringing up the point about the six you know we all can contribute um and so the SIGs, as far as the emerging SIGs, and as Heather mentioned, the, the research SIGs, um, that's just a, it's an opportunity for to collaborate and communicate and have support. And, you know, Suzanne has offered, and I'm sure Jaing has offered to, you know, you have questions, reach out. Um, you know, if this is your interest and this is what you feel like you have a space in, in your, your life, this is a great group of people that are here to to help help you with that that moving forward in the next steps. So. And I think we've talked about over the last year since I've been in this role about how we can do that mentor mentee um, relationship. And so those are some other ideas after we get this podcast launched and the nursing resource guides launched. Um, you know, thinking about what's our next project to take on to be a service to the membership. So they can feel like they can do it, as we said, like you just jump in there and do it. And, you know, it's career advice sometimes. And I think mm -hmm. I have so many fabulous members on my research advisory council that have come in very different ways to where they're at today in their training that definitely, you know, we have the resource and the availability to think about how we can even just provide career advice for that. Thank you. Well, with that, that will conclude our podcast for today. And I want to thank Heather and Suzanne and Jaing for spending the time with us and sharing your wealth of knowledge, as well as your career reflections and the opportunity for us to inspire and engage further researchers and new researchers moving forward. And it's just been, it's been a privilege and we'd like to thank all of y'all for being here. Thanks, Julie, for having us. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And with that, that will conclude our podcast for today. And thank you all for joining us. Bye.